This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. That's in the New Testament, middle of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. There's so many things I'm encouraged about and excited about for our move, which is coming soon. Uh, And one is that we got uh, chairs that have a tray under them. And so we will have, like under every other chair, we'll have a Bible. And uh, so I'll be able to say, for those who don't have a Bible, turn to page 623 or whatever it is. And uh, that is going to be wonderful. We're going to have the scripture accessible, accessible for everyone. If they're a guest, don't own a Bible, then we're going to stay, take that one out of the tray and just take it home with you. It's yours uh, if you don't have one. So um, that, that is, that's exciting. But for now, you'll need to either <clears throat> open your device or uh, buy a Bible. Or, or Actually, if you don't own a Bible, we probably have one here we could give you. Um, so... Well, uh, I was doing some editing while I was sitting there singing uh, on my message uh, mentally. We're studying communion. We're in a series called The Gathering. And what we're talking about is what do we do together uh, when we gather? What, what, what are the parts of our worship gathering? And, and why does the Lord uh, call us to do these various things? And so today I want to talk about communion. And I, I had sort of an opening illustration, but then I just was thinking about the Corinthian church and thinking about my illustration, oftentimes you tell a story or an illustration to sort of like bring uh, application or clarity to a passage, or sometimes even interest. If, if it's not clear what the passage means, it kind of stirs your interest to tell a story. I thought, you know what, I'm jumping right in because the Corinthians are so interesting. They are so fascinating. They are so messed up that any story I tell will pale in comparison to them. So I'm editing the open illustration, and we're going right to the Corinthians because this group of folks, my friends, uh, are very, very interesting. Uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna, there's three sections. I'm going to just re- break this down into three sections. I'm going to read the first section and pray uh, and then teach through that. Then I'll read the next section and then and teach through that. And then the third section and teach through that because this whole uh, passage is about the Lord's Supper. But it's not about the Lord's Supper just generically. Paul saying, let me tell you about the Lord's Supper. It's being addressed to a church um, that's having challenges and particularly how they're practicing the Lord's Supper. So let's read verse 17, chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together... It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we study this passage of Scripture that you would open up to us uh, the glory of the Lord's Supper and the glory of the Savior whom we, recommend, whom we remember. And I pray as well that, Lord, through the 
the sins of those who've gone before us, the Corinthians, that you might instruct us, that you might admonish us, that we might guard our own hearts and lives, uh, that we not repeat uh, the very sins uh, that brought you uh, dishonor and disgrace, and that we might instead focus our hearts and minds on you in a way that brings you tremendous glory. So, Lord, would you shine through this passage tonight and teach us and enable us to encounter you in a very personal and real way by your spirit tonight through the text and then later through the Lord's Supper itself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to talk about two things tonight. The first one is the horizontal implications of the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to talk about the vertical implications of the Lord's Supper. Um, The Lord's Supper, if you're unfamiliar or maybe you're familiar with the term communion or um, even Eucharist, you may know that those terms, they are, uh, it it is taking of bread and, uh, and wine together Uh, to remember the body and blood of Jesus. We'll see that in just a minute, but we're going to talk about it before we read that. So I want to explain that in case you are unclear about that. And when I say horizontal implications, I mean going this way, person-to-person implications. And when I say vertical implications, I mean between us and God. So how does the Lord's Supper, what are the implications for the church itself? And what are the implications between the believer or the church of believers and God. So let's start horizontal. Paul begins by telling the church that he cannot commend them. Verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Now, interestingly, back at verse two of the same chapter, he says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. So Paul was a guy who started this church and now he is writing back and giving them instructions. And there are some things he can commend them for. But this handling of the Lord's Supper, he says, I cannot commend you for that. He says, because, why, why can't he commend them? When you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. The NIV translation translates it this way, that, that your meetings do more harm than good. That's what he's saying about this is an indictment on a church service. The church comes together to worship the Lord. And he says, I can't, I can't commend you because you, uh, after you have come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. So the NIV says, your meetings do more harm than good. In other words, God is saying, <clears throat> it would be better if none of you came to church. It would be better if all of you guys stayed home. That's what he's saying, because when you come together, in this instance he's about to talk about, when you leave, you're worse off. Your Christian faith, your example, your life of following Jesus as a disciple, you're worse when you left than when you came. When you come together, he says, verse 18, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. So notice the language, you come together, that sounds unifying, right? Everybody comes together, but when you come together, you're divided, is what he says to the church. You're divided. And, and these divisions show up around the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Uh, you're not eating under the Lord's authority. You may be going through the motions. You may be using the correct elements, 
But it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. Now, for this to make sense, uh, we need to understand the context in which the Corinthians were taking the Lord's Supper. It was around an entire meal. So it wasn't just a small cup uh, and a little piece of bread. It was uh, around an entire meal. And so that's where the problem comes in. Because he says it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. When the Lord, when we think about the Lord and the Lord's Supper, it is about Jesus sacrificing himself for us. It's about Jesus preferring us and paying a price for us. And yet he says, Corinthians, you are all about yourselves. You're coming to celebrate the sacrificial son of God, and you are just coming together with selfishness on display. How does this work? Well, it says that each one of you goes ahead with his own meal and one goes hungry. So this was not a, uh, I mean, they weren't good Southern evangelicals uh, because this was not a potluck. They weren't having a potluck meal where everybody brings their own food and then whatever you bring, you share. And um, so they're not doing that. It sounds like it's bring your own meal, B-Y-O-M, you bring your food. Uh, and you bring, yeah, and then you eat your own food. And it seems like some were maybe coming earlier or they were going ahead and not waiting on others. And some people didn't even have food to eat. There's poor folks in the church who didn't even have dinner and the rich or those who were even just have food, they are going ahead and eating without them. And beyond that, someone is, uh, Dipping into the communion wine, or they're probably just having it with their meal, but there's people getting drunk at the church community dinner. This is the Lord's Supper. They're getting together to remember the most sober event in the history of the world, the death of Jesus for our sins. And rather than treating that with a measure of reverence, uh, they're getting they're getting wasted. They're drinking and getting drunk. And he just says, what? This is, this is unbelievable. That's, that's what he actually says. He says, what? Exclamation point, verse 22. What is this that you are doing? And that's why he says, I mean, that's why he says just these meetings do more harm than good. If you're just going to feed your face and ignore others, and you're just going to get drunk, just stay home. That's what he says. Don't you have your own homes to eat in and drink in? If that's all it is, if it's not about community, if it's not about sharing, just stay home. Don't fake community and come together and like have this meal so that you're faking that we're together, but the haves are over here and the have nots are over there. Your community is insincere. It is hypocritical. Now we read this and we just say, whoa, I mean, this is unbelievable. It's probably helpful to realize that every group of Christians, every generation of Christians has their blind spots and every generation of Christians has their blind spots, usually influenced by their culture. When the church looks more like the culture, uh, you know, future generations look back and say, how could you have done that? But at the time, people are just being like everyone around them. And that's what's happening here. In the Greco-Roman world, uh, it was a very structured society that was divided by class. There was sharp divisions by class. 
And there's cultures in the world this day that officially have sharp divisions by class. And so it would not be unusual in the Roman world to gather at someone's house and eat. And based on class, people would eat different things. So the wealthy would have something to eat and the poor would have something more deserved. Somebody's eating hot dogs, somebody's eating filet mignon at the same gathering. And that would have been an acceptable, understood, cultural practice. So what's going on is exactly like what would happen in the world. Um, The church at Corinth likely met in a home. There weren't church buildings at this time. So they likely met in the home and they seem to be a decent sized congregation as you read through the letters to Corinth. Um, So probably they're meeting in the home of a wealthy person. And the way this probably worked was most large homes at this time would have had an open courtyard kind of area, could have been enclosed courtyard that would have been maybe at the front or the center of the house. And then they would have had something of a more formal area in the large houses in a, in a Corinthian mansion or something. They would have had a larger room that would have been for dining. So probably what happened was they had the dining room with the wealthy, the established people there, and the other people who didn't have much just hung out. Uh, in the courtyard. And at some point, they must have come together and shared the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine together, remembering Jesus. So they must have come together for that, but they, they, they weren't sharing food for the meal. And may, the text doesn't say this, so this is speculation, but they may have actually been separated in the home. Whatever the case was, certain people were eating and drinking and certain people didn't have anything to eat. And yet they are sharing the Lord's, the, the, the actual bread and wine itself. They're acting like their culture and they are missing the intimacy, the fellowship, the friendship that comes together when people unite in the gospel around a table to eat together. They're missing that. The gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, it destroys cultural barriers. That's what they're missing. Jesus' death and resurrection levels the playing field. Everyone is a sinner in need of grace. And everyone who believes in Jesus has their sins forgiven and is on equal status before the Lord. That's what the Lord's Supper in part communicates. And they're missing that altogether. Now, we may think this scene is crazy. People being, being acceptable to segregate between the wealthy and the poor. And uh, we think, well, man, that would never happen today. And probably in any evangelical church that's serious about the Bible at all, uh, that would not formally happen today. But informally and unofficially, there are separations that are very commonplace in the church where the gospel hasn't had its intended effect. And the Lord's Supper hasn't taken hold in people's lives so that horizontally it's a level playing field and everyone is together. See, in Corinth, people were just being with the folks that they were more comfortable with. And that's not far different in the church today. If we're honest, we would say that happens in churches today. We can be more comfortable with people who are of our same socioeconomic status. I'm talking about informal, 
casually. I'm talking about heart attitudes. I'm not talking about certain tables serving different kinds of food like may have been going on there or someone showing up at the church potluck and not being served anything because of their status. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying informally from the heart, which is what counts before the Lord. We can be a little more comfortable with people of our own socioeconomic status. We can be a little more comfortable with people of our own educational background and less comfortable with those who have more education or those who have less education. We can be more comfortable with people who are are our similar age. And sometimes entire churches are built around a narrow demographic age. Because everyone's comfortable with people their same age, whether it's people in their 20s or people in their 70s. Sometimes people can be a little more comfortable around folks who are of their same race. Or maybe a race or culture that we perceive to be very similar to our own. And very uncomfortable with a race or a culture where the relatability we perceive to be far different than our own. And so people in churches and entire churches can all be the same race or culture. Sometimes we're a little more comfortable with people of the same marital status. And so singles don't really want to hang around the married people. They want to have some fun. Married people are boring. And the married people don't want to really hang around the singles, because they feel like, well, we don't have as much in common. So there can be segregation by marital status, relationally, not formally, not formally, informally in our hearts. Could be the same people hanging around at the same season of life. So those with, who are newly married or those who have little kids or those who have high school kids or those who are empty nesters. Same season of life. Might be families who are attracted, not just attracted, but more comfortable with going to pursue families who have, oh, similar, similar approaches to life, who do life in similar ways within the church. Where sometimes certain groups of families will, will be together if they have certain things in common and may not be around other folks. So maybe the public school families just sort of hang together because they sort of share something in common. Maybe the Christian school families hang together because they share something in common. And maybe the homeschool families hang together because they all share something in common. And while there would be no formal segregation, like depending on where your kids go to school, you sit in this section, this section, or this section, there can be a hesitancy to embrace and pursue folks whose choices you don't understand. I'm not talking about segregation that happens when we're sitting in rows like this. I'm talking about segregation that happens where it matters, like in Corinth, at the dinner table. At the dinner table. That who we eat with, who do you have dinner with, that's the question. Unity around the Lord's table represents the unity we should share around the dinner table. Unity around the Lord's table should represent the kind of unity that we would have around the dinner table. Fellowship and sharing with all kinds of folks, 
different age, different gender, different socioeconomic background, different marital status, different race, different culture. I'm not saying that the Bible has anything against having friends that are very similar to ourselves. Of course. Of course, it's appropriate to have friends in the church who are like us, for, with whom we share common, uh, maybe, maybe the things I mentioned, maybe uh, even a common season of life, for instance, or something like that. It's not wrong to have some friends that are your same age. The question is, is that the only kinds of friends you have in the church? The question is not, do you have some friends who are of your same race or your same age? The question is, are those the only friends that you really have in the church? If so, I want to ask, how is the gospel breaking down barriers and unifying us in Christ? Do we look just like the world? That's the problem in Corinth. They look like the world. Do we look like the world? Does the church really relate any differently among ourselves than the world does? Now, you can look across the room, and there's some diversity in every category that I mentioned in the room. We're not all 20. We're not all 60. Um, we're not all of the same race. I don't know people's socioeconomic background, but I don't think we're all uh, make the exact same income. I don't think so. Uh, we're not all male. We're not all female. So there's diversity in the room, and I praise God for that. But the kind of diversity that the Lord's Supper represents is the kind of diversity that comes where by the broken body and blood of Jesus, people that would never relate together are around the same dinner table as friends. That's what the gospel does. And that's what they're missing. And the challenge is we can look just like our culture. One of the glories of community group is that we don't, you know, we don't have any kind of um, certain rules about community groups. Those are our small groups if you're new here. So we don't have like uh, rules about what the group needs to look like. You can visit any group and join any group you want to. Uh, but oftentimes they're diverse. They're, everybody's not the same. And I think that's one of the glories. And sometimes folks will say, I mean, it's great to have someone who's very similar to your stage of life or your age or if your marital status, if you're single, to have another single in the group or if you're married, to have another married in the group. That's great. That's wonderful. Uh, but sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, I don't know. I just can't. The people are all kind of different than me and my group. Wonderful. Wonderful. Now the gospel can take effect and we can begin to relate together and grow together in Jesus and not preferences. Not backgrounds, not what I like and what you like. Now, I'm not saying that we're not trying to make groups where every single person is as radically different as every other person. Let's get the most extreme people we can imagine and for God's glory, put them all in a group together and see what happens. We're not doing that. You should go to a group where you have a friend, one that you already have a friend, someone you already know. Great, but don't huddle up all just the same. Because the gospel is on display when that's not the case. That's the problem in Corinth. I was meeting with a city leader this week. And I asked him, uh, with our impending move to the square, how he thought we could serve our city. So we're talking specifically about that. And then he began to talk about our location. 
And uh, he said, well, okay, let's think about where you are in Frisco Square. And then he, I had never thought of this. He just took about a two-mile radius all around the square and described every neighborhood around it. The city leader knew the city really well. And he just began to take me on a journey. Well, if you go to the east, there's an area that is older homes that have some of the people who've lived here a long time. Real historic Frisco folk. And he gave me a couple names that I knew that are prominent city leaders that live right there. They're folks who've been around a while. And if you go a little south from there, um, it, it, you have a largely Hispanic population. Kind of described that to me. And he said, if you go a little south from there, uh, down on Parkwood, if you go down there, you have one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in all of Frisco, very expensive homes over kind of by Frisco High School. And then if you come back up to where you are in Frisco Square, you have uh, a lot of residents that are um, young professional, single, married without kids, and empty nesters. Very different than the previous places he described. And then if you go a couple miles or less, uh, just to the west of where you are, you have a lot of sort of families with school-aged kids. And as he, as he made a circle, he said, within, within just like a two-mile radius around where you are, it is very diverse. Very diverse. I don't know that there's a spot in Frisco where you could put, put, put a pen down and say just circle it around and you would have a more diverse racial, socioeconomic age, uh, diversity than any other spot in Frisco, perhaps. He didn't say that. I'm not saying that, but I, I don't, and maybe, you know, of another spot, but it's, we got some diversity going on. What an opportunity that the Lord would place us in the center of all kinds of people, young and old, married, single, different races to reach them with the gospel. That that's what the Lord's supper represents is Christ's body, at least his body, his body broken that the church would be one, not splintered, but one. Now, I'm going to skip verses 23 and 26 and come back to them. Verse 27, this is the results of their coming together and acting divisively at the Lord's Supper. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along the wor- with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Okay, so what does he say to them? Well, uh, he's talking to them about the consequences for their attitudes. Now, verses 27 and 28 uh, have been, I believe, misapplied at times, and actually have completely hijacked the message of communion. Um, and what's, what we're coming to next in verses 23 through 26, which describes communion as the Lord, uh, as his body broken and his blood shed. Verses 27 and 28, speaking of don't drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner and let a person examine himself, is not a call to intense introspection, 
where during every time communion is served, there is this massive inward uh, sort of evaluation where one's eyes during the communion service are fixed on oneself. Um, Their eyes are fixed on themselves. The Lord's not calling us to communion to fix our eyes on ourselves. It's not about us. The goal is not to sit down and confess every, to just run through every possible sin so that you can then become worthy of taking communion. You are not worthy of taking communion. You will never be worthy of taking communion. There is nothing you can do to clean yourself up enough so that you could stand before the Lord and say, in myself, I am now ready to take communion. I am worthy of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The whole point of communion is that the worthy one dies for the unworthy ones. The one who is glorious, who is perfect, uh, lives a perfect life in our place and dies for our sins. Jesus dies for your unworthiness so that in Christ you are declared worthy to receive the gift of grace, which is represented by communion. So what is this that it means eating and drinking in an unworthy manner? What should we examine to see how we are eating and drinking? Well, the Corinthian case is exactly it. He's saying, think about what you're doing and how you are receiving communion. They are coming together to celebrate unity in Jesus and then conducting the whole service with such selfishness that Jesus said it would have been better, Paul says to them, it would have been better for you to stay at home. Why why just eat at home? Your meeting does more harm than good. They are worse off because the very communion that they are receiving, which is to declare forgiveness of sins, the very way they're receiving it is to sin in such a way that the institution itself uh, represents the sins that Jesus died for, not the forgiveness that he provides. They are not, verse 29, they are not discerning the body. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. They are not discerning that Jesus' body was broken and that they as a body are one. They don't get that. They're not seeing that the fundamental reason that they're eating the broken bread is because the body of Jesus was broken. They don't discern uh, what it's even about. They don't discern what Christ has done. They don't discern who they are and who he has made them to be. It is just a blatant display of the sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. They missed the whole point, and because of that, they are eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. Now, if they're really Christians, it's not eternal judgment or condemnation for verse 32 says, when you are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So he's saying the Lord is actually disciplining people in Corinth because of how they are relating as a church, particularly around the Lord's supper. The problem, the answer isn't to get their eyes ultimately on themselves. The answer is ultimately to get their eyes on Jesus and they will see what a mockery they are making of the death of Jesus and they'll see their own uh, sins in the matter. So how is God disciplining them? Well, some of them are weak, some of them are sick, and some of them are have already died because of the way they're acting. Verse 30. 
Can you explain that to us? No, I can't explain that to you. I don't know why their conduct, I don't know why people are getting weak, sick, and dying uh, for the way they're acting. All I can say is that the Lord takes the unity of his church very seriously, and the Lord takes um, our coming together and our building our lives as one people uh, for his glory very seriously. And the Lord takes considering what it is he's done in the gospel and applying it, and they are doing it in a terrible way. So if you were ever the person who grew up and you came to uh, church and communion was all introspection and you're just racking your brain to think of everything possible that you've done that you need to clean up to get worthy uh, before the Lord, that is not what's happening in Corinth. These people are completely blinded. Now, if you came in completely blinded, did not know what it meant, did not understand Jesus's body and how you're relating to other Christians, uh, were totally blinded by that, then absolutely uh, this passage would apply to you. And we're all called to examine our own hearts of how we relate to others in the body of Christ. Certainly, if we have unforgiveness towards others, um, if we need to be reconciled with others, um, if we're not blessing others but harming them by our speech or actions, absolutely that needs to be dealt with um, on any Sunday, not just when we're receiving communion, but any time. Obviously, that's a serious matter. But uh, if you have a kind of a weak conscience that's just kind of holding on to, oh, I think I'm, I can't even do this, I'm so unworthy, uh, look to Jesus, the one who died for you, and receive forgiveness um, as you receive communion. Okay, let's talk about the vertical dimensions of the Lord's Supper. Verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He reminds them, Paul reminds them of what the passage Rob taught last week, if you were here, which was the Last Supper, Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples. He calls them back and reminds them of that. This is what you're to be remembering. When Jesus at the Passover um, offered uh, the bread and said, this is my body, and offered the uh, wine and said, this is my, the cup, said, this is the cup of the new covenant, in my blood. So he draws them back to there. And several things happen about the, as we think about how this relates to the Lord. First of all, it is remembering. That's what he says. As he says in verse uh, 24, this is my body, do, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what they are supposed to be doing at this time is remembering Jesus. They're supposed to be remembering his body broken so that they could be one, and his blood shed so that we, they have forgiveness of sins. His, his, his blood was shed to institute a new covenant. A covenant is, is an agreement. It is a binding promise between two parties that includes consequences if either of the parties breaks the covenant. So it's like a solemn contract. I mean, maybe a contract would be the closest thing, um, or something you take vows in, like, like uh, 
Well, wedding vows, uh, a marriage would be a covenant. So that would be probably a better illustration than a business contract. So like a marriage vows, that would be the, in our culture, what would, uh, what would be a covenant where you're taking, making an agreement. But under this, under the, uh, in the biblical world, a covenant was a binding promise between two parties that had consequences to, uh, to failing to uphold your end of the covenant. And so what's so beautiful about this is that God takes full obligation for the covenant and he pays the price for our unfaithfulness to the covenant. Jesus's blood is shed, which is what's to happen to the covenant breaker. We're the covenant breaker. God makes a covenant with us, an agreement with us. We break the covenant because we're unfaithful to God and God himself takes the punishment the wrath, the judgment that we deserve for breaking the covenant. We are sinful and unfaithful to God, yet he is forgiving of us. He's saying that's what you should remember when you are receiving this cup. It should be a humbling event where you are not proud towards others, where you are not selfish towards others. But it is if our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we really think about what he did in suffering for us, it it melts our heart to love the people he has joined us to. This is what we remember when we receive the body and the blood. His blood was shed to pay for my sins. Jesus suffered so that we are forgiven. He made a covenant that we could not and did not uphold, and then he paid for our unfaithfulness. This is what we remember. And and remember biblically doesn't mean just recall a fact like, oh, yeah, I I remember that, you know. It's not recalling a fact. It's experiencing like when the the Passover meal, when they remembered that God brought his people, his children out of uh, Egypt, that they weren't just saying, oh, yeah, that's kind of a fond memory, like looking at a picture. No, they are eating a meal and experiencing afresh God's delivering power. And that's what he's saying. Remember, when you come together, remember what Jesus has done for you. And all over again, celebrate, experience, enjoy, treasure, receive his grace of forgiveness afresh. Grow confident in your assurance of Christ and your faith in him through the sacrament of communion. Uh, Remember what he has done and engage your mind, engage your heart with what he has done for you. So it's a remembering. Secondly, it's a proclaiming. He says in verse uh, 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it is a proclaiming of forgiveness Forgiveness is totally out, happens outside of us. You did nothing to earn your salvation. You did nothing to merit God's favor. You did nothing to save yourself. And when you hold the bread and the cup and you taste the bread and the cup, it reminds you by that physical uh, reality that your salvation occurred outside of you. It's not an inward thing. Communion is not an inward thing where I look at myself and I'm aware of what I've done or not done. It's an outward looking thing where I am looking to what Christ has done. And the very fact the bread and the cup are physical and they are outside of me is a reminder that my salvation is based solely on the physical death and resurrection of Jesus for me. I am right with God because of Jesus and only Jesus. He forgives and he will keep me to the end. And this is what we proclaim. We proclaim that every time we receive it. We are proclaiming grace, grace, grace. 
And we're also proclaiming it will not always be this way because he says, you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, that we are anticipating the return of Jesus and there will be the wedding feast, the wedding feast of the lamb. There will be a banquet where all of God's people will share with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And there will be no rich and poor, and there will be no insiders and outsiders, and there will be no division by gender or race um, or socioeconomic background or anything that our culture might divide people over. We will all be together one in Christ. And we proclaim that until he comes. And right now is a meal that is a foretaste of that day. And it calls us to say, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Now may your kingdom come and your will be done now in earth as it is in heaven, as it will be on that day. May today our relationships more and more reflect that day. That's what he's saying. You proclaim that every time. So when he's saying they have no, they're not discerning the body. They're not considering the blood of the Lord that they have. It's meaningless to them. He says, examine yourselves and respond to this glorious truth. No one will be in that day excluded. And so that has implications for how we relate today. We remember what he's done in the past. We proclaim what he's doing now, and we proclaim that he's returning, looking forward to the future. One last thing about what's happening besides remembering and proclaiming, and I got to go out of this passage to the previous chapter, because he talks about in chapter 10, he talks about the Lord's uh, Supper as well. So if it's remembering and proclaiming, I might call this one communing. Look what he says in 1014. Therefore, my beloved, he's addressing idolatry here, Flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup, he's talking about communion, communion, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, this word participation, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Um, It's a familiar, you would have to know very little Greek to have heard this word sometime in a church service. I mean, there's, there's groups that call their small groups after this Greek word. I knew of a coffee shop that was called by this Greek word. It's the word koinonia, and it means fellowship. It means communion. It means sharing. It means uh, participation. So what he's saying is the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing, a communion? Is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? This is language that's stronger than a mere memorial, that's just remembering something that happened. It's an engagement that is current and is present. There is a fellowship, a communing with Christ that we receive at the Lord's Supper. He is present as we receive the Lord's Supper by faith, which they were not doing. But when we receive it by faith, he strengthens and ministers to us. We are welcomed into his presence. Is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? Is it not a fellowship, a communion with the body of Christ? There is a sense that we are in his presence sharing with him together in the Lord's Supper. Now, how is he present when we receive that? Well, he's not literally present. It is not the literal. The elements do not uh, transform or trans. 
Their substance doesn't transform into the literal body and literal blood of Christ. It was never intended that way. At the Last Supper, when Jesus says, this is my body, it was not literally, the bread did not literally become his body. Um, It couldn't. He's there. This is his body. This is the bread. Like if I point to a map, someone said, I point to a map and say, this is France. Well, that's not really France. Uh, it's what I'm pointing to. And the same is true here. It couldn't have really been his body because he is his body. Um, so it's not literal, but, and there's mystery to this to be sure, but there is a real sense of participation. There is a real sense of his presence when we receive by faith and experience his grace. These, the signs and the symbols of the body and the blood, um, they, they signify something that is real. His presence with us. And so we're made freshly aware of our forgiveness, our union with Christ, our union with one another when we receive thinking and by faith trusting the Lord for what he has done for us. And so we should expect that communion uh, produces a refreshing in us, a solidifying that we are, as, in the, as Jesus said in John, we are feasting on Christ. There is feasting on Christ means there's a nourishment not to our physical bodies. There's not much the way we do it. It's small. It's not a full meal. So there's not real nourishment necessarily uh, to your physical body, but there is to our spirits as we feast on Christ. So how should we receive the Lord's Supper? Let me tell you two things, and then we're going to receive together. Uh, First of all, we should consider the vertical dimensions. Remember talking about the vertical dimensions and the horizontal. We should consider the vertical dimensions, dimensions. And when we receive communion, we should thank Jesus for what he's done for us. We should thank Jesus. There is a place to be aware of my sin towards others. We'll come to that in a minute. That's the horizontal. But it is primarily remembering Jesus, not remembering my faults. It is remembering Jesus who died for those faults. The spotlight is on him. The focus is on him. And we receive the bread and the cup, and we, we want to hear what, what is being proclaimed to us. Remember, he said that, that you, you proclaim that when you... Um, let me get back over there. He said that as often as you eat and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. So we need to hear what's being proclaimed. When you receive the bread and the cup, here's what is being proclaimed to your ears. You are forgiven. That's what you should be hearing. You are forgiven. You are declared righteous. You are a covenant breaker, but all of your covenant breaking is forgiven by the covenant keeping God who shed his blood for you. You have the favor of God over your soul. God has shown favor to you by mercy. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Every time you receive that, you should be saying no condemnation. That's what Jesus is saying to me. You have been adopted into the father's family. You receive that, but I am in Christ. I have been adopted by the father. I am not on the outside. I am not an orphan. I am not a slave. I am brought into the family of God. That's what is proclaimed to us. Salvation is a gift. You don't earn. We're not charging for the bread and the cup tonight. You can't pay your way into the communion service. You can't. You reach out your hands and you receive. It is a gift. That's the way salvation is. You reach out and by faith receive what Jesus has done for you. It is not earned. 
It is given. It is good news that tonight when you receive the bread and the cup, here's what's being proclaimed. Stop trying to win God's approval. You have God's approval over your life in Christ. You have been declared righteous in Christ. And and the Lord approves of Jesus. And if we're in him, our sins are declared uh, forgiven. You have it. God loves you. He is changing you and one day will return for you. So we need to be receiving these glorious truths. That's what's being proclaimed. And that has radical implications for our behavior. But our behavior changes when we see that. If you try to change your behavior without looking to the gospel, that's called legalism. That's doing works and cleaning yourself up to earn the favor of God. Real obedience comes to God and receives everything I just said. And your heart is so touched by what Jesus has done for you that you ask for his help to change you, to make you more like him. And the more you behold what he's done for you, the more you desire to repent from sins and turn, put to death the flesh and bring to life by the Holy Spirit what he's done for you. So getting this has radical implications for life. It doesn't say it's free, great, I can go out here and do whatever I want. Then you have not understood why his body was broken and his blood was shed. That's the Corinthians. We can do whatever we want. Rich people have a feast and ignore the poor. That's people who don't get the, who don't get the gospel. They don't get the gospel. What are the horizontal dimensions? Jesus' body was broken that we might be one. This is why the gathering, what we're calling this series, is such a big deal. God didn't just reconcile us to himself, but to one another. We are one people reconciled together. We're called to worship together as a community, to love one another, to serve one another, to go beyond the cultural barriers that keep us apart and at times even opposed to one another. So the gospel calls us by God's grace to ignore barriers, to ignore uh, anything that would separate us And to come together. It means that we are to pursue forgiveness with anyone that we are at odds with. So when I said we need to keep our eyes on the Lord, that is the tone of communion, not keeping your eye on yourself. Having said that, obviously we do need to be aware whenever we're singing, whenever we're hearing the word preached, whenever we're receiving communion, we do need to be attentive to the voice of the Holy Spirit bringing conviction to our hearts where we have sinned where we have gossiped or slandered about a brother or sister in the fellowship, where we have been angry towards someone else, where we have intentionally excluded someone else to the love of people that we are, for the love of people we are comfortable with. We need to be attuned to those things. We need to ask the Lord's forgiveness, and we need to go to those people and ask their forgiveness and make those things right. And if we can't figure it out, we need to bring, it's so important that we need to bring someone in to help us, a leader, Someone who can help us work things out together to pursue relational integrity. That's what this is all about. We are to repent of classism. We are to repent of sexism. We are to repent of ageism. We are to repent of racism. We are to repent of nationalism. We are to repent of denominationalism and every other ism that divides us from anyone who is in Christ Jesus, and especially in the fellowship that we are a part of. So there are horizontal dimensions, but we start vertically, 
and we respond to the Lord and we ask him, would he empower us to celebrate his grace and our union together as a people? Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.